Last week, we moved into a section of Peter's letter where we began to look at this issue of what it means to live a holy life. What is holiness? We began to look at last week. And last week, we said that holiness is not just the mere keeping of a list of rules. We said we don't look at God and say, God, give me all the rules that I've got to keep in order to be holy, and then I'll go out and keep those rules and live a holy life. And so holiness isn't just the the, the fact that we don't break the I don't sleep with someone that I'm not married to rule, okay? That's not the essence of holiness, Nor is holiness just being a good person and so being kind and generous and warm-hearted and tender. Holiness isn't necessarily the cultivation of those types of character qualities. Now, while holiness is not less than living inside of God's ordained boundaries for life, and it is not less than the development of some of those, those character qualities in our life, holiness is so much more than that, we said last week. Because holiness is not a lease contract where we look at God and say, God, I'm going I'm to give you access to areas of my life where it's comfortable. I'm going to give you access to areas of my life where it's rather convenient for me. I'm going to give you access to areas of my life where it benefits me. Holiness is not a lease contract, but holiness emerges from a recognition that God owns us. And he owns us twice over. He owns us because he created us, and he owns us because he redeemed us. He gave us life, and he bought us back out of slavery and bondage and captivity. So God owns us. And so we say, God, everything that I have is yours. Everything that I am is yours. So I look up to the heavens, and I say, God, I am, you're, my, you're my master. You own me. So you have access to every area of my life, not just the ones that's comfortable for you to meddle in, but for those areas that it's uncomfortable and you push me on. God, you have access to everything. Here I am. I'm yours. Use me for your glory and the good of this world. See, holiness isn't less than the keeping of or rules or it's not less than the cultivation of character qualities, but it's so much more. And so in holiness, you look to God and you say, God, use me, all of me, including my sexuality, including my service to others. Use me, all of me, including my gender. I'm going to live within the God-ordained boundaries of who you've created me to be and my generosity, and I'm a gift to others. Holiness is a holistic offering of our lives up to God. Irenaeus of Lyon said this uh, many years ago. He said, instead of the law enjoining the giving of tithes, So the law commands us to tithe, he says. But Jesus told us to share all our possessions with the poor and not to love our neighbors only, but even our enemies. And not merely to be liberal givers and bestowers, but even that we should present a gratuitous gift to those who take away our goods. He says, holiness isn't just the keeping of a list of rules or of laws, but it's the totality and holistic offering up of our whole lives unto God. Saying, God, you have access to to every room, access to every corner, access to every nook and cranny. I'm yours, use me. And last week he said, if we're ever going to grow in holiness, we've got to learn. We've got to learn that our portfolios can't be diversified. Okay? Now, most of us who are in the early stages of life and investing, we want our portfolios to be diversified because we want to have dividends coming from all these sources. But Peter says, if we're going to grow in holiness, our portfolio can't be diversified. We can't be investing some here and some there. But we've got to bet everything that we have and invest everything that we have in Jesus. We've got to push all the chips to the center of the table and say, I'm all in on him. I'm expecting only good from him. Not from anyone else. I'm expecting all good from him and not from anyone or anything else. So we don't have a diversified portfolio because there is one, we said, who is coming. 
There's one who is coming. And the return that he will bring when he comes. Listen, the return that he will bring when he comes is as high as the heavens are above the earth. It is as high as the peak of Mount Everest is from the depths of the Mariana Trench, the deepest part of the Pacific Ocean. That's how vast, that's how big of a return he's bringing when he comes. So I'm betting everything on him. I'm fully hoping in his future grace when he shows up. And I'm going to turn my mind on and think through the implications of that for how I should live today. Because what you're looking for in the future always shapes how you live in the present. Looked at all of that last week. All of that last week. This week we come to this text to take a look at, continue to take a look at what it means to live a holy life because Peter's not done with us on that issue. Right? And so I thought, well, I can either preach one two and a half hour sermon, which you would all love and enjoy, I'm relatively certain of, or we could break it up over the course of several weeks. And so that's what we've chosen to do. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, if you've got a Bible, turn there. If not, it'll be on the screen, and we'll read down through verse 13. 21 together. Listen to what Peter says. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, in this text, we want to drill down on a couple of things this morning that Peter tells us are... Uh, characteristic of a holy life. Peter says a holy life, one that's lived in absolute, utter surrender to God, saying, God, use all of me for your glory and the good of the world, is characterized by both a resistance and a reverence. Both a resistance and a reverence. So let's take that first one first. Peter first says to us in verse 14 that those who are aiming to live a holy life and pursuing holiness in all of life, a holistic offering of themselves to God, they live with a particular type of resistance. Of resistance. In verse 14, if you go back up into the text, Peter likens our obedience to that of a child. We talked about that a little bit last week. And he calls us to resist having our conduct shaped by what he calls the passions of our former ignorance. Now what Peter says there assumes this, is that all of us have our conduct and our behavior shaped by something or someone, don't we? Every single one of us, we can't escape the shaping influences, both externally and internally. But what Peter says is the greatest shaping influence that exists and that stands in the way of living a life of holiness is not external pressure to conform to some other mold or model, but an internal pressure that's pushing us. Listen, whenever, um, as, a, as a father of two young children, 
Sometimes we're recipients of people's generosity. Other times I think we're just recipients of people's garbage. Okay, they're like, our kids outgrew this stuff. They don't need it anymore. I wasn't going to throw it away, but I'll just give it to these guys because they have young kids and they'll probably use it. And so our playroom is just cluttered with all kinds of stuff that people have given to us over the years. And one basket that we have in our kids' playroom is filled with all kinds of Play-Doh molds. All right. And so our kids love to play with Play-Doh. They pull it out and they get it on the table and they mash it up and create all kinds of things out of it. And so they've got all these molds that make animals and people and utensils and cars and, you know, uh, sporting equipment. You know, they've got all these molds that people just said, hey, they need that stuff. And so they gave it all to our kids. And so there's a big basket full of us and our kids will take it out. They'll put the Play-Doh in there and they'll press it down. And when they press it down, it kind of shapes it into a mold. They even have this little Play-Doh ice cream dispenser. Okay, And I've, I've tried it on several occasions, and I think you can find better ice cream out there. Okay, It tastes a little chemically to me. I'm not sure why. Uh, but the, the, the point is, is that those, those molds, as you put that Play-Doh in there and you put pressure on the mold, it squeezes out all the excess, and what it leaves you with is whatever shape that that mold has been created in. And listen, there are external forces that try and put external pressure on our lives to shape us into a particular image. But what Peter says here is that perhaps the greatest shaping influence in your life is not a force coming from outside, but something coming from within. Something coming from within. Peter says, do not be conformed. In other words, don't have your behavior or your conduct shaped, he says, by the passions of your former ignorance is the language that he uses to describe it. Now, when Peter says, don't be shaped by your passions, most of us, immediately our minds run to evil desires that well up within our hearts. But that's not necessarily what Peter is saying. The word that Peter uses there when he talks about the passions of our former ignorance, he says those passions is a word in the Greek language that's, that's epithumia. And the word thumia means desires and epi means over or abundant or in excess. So you take the, the word desires and you attach a prefix to the front of it. Those are, you, you English majors will enjoy this. Attach a prefix to the front of it, right? And it, it kind of modifies what that word means. And so there's these desires that we have, but there's this, these over-desires or these epi-desires or these abundant and excess desires. And Peter, that's what Peter's saying. He's saying, don't allow your life to be shaped by excess desires, over-desires. He's not necessarily talking about desires for bad things, but he says wanting even good things too badly causes all kinds of destruction in our lives. And some of you go, wait, wait a minute. Like, how can you want something that's good too much? How can you want something that's healthy and beneficial too badly? Let me tell you how. Right? Whenever you operate in accordance with over-desires or these excess desires or these abundant desires, when you're shaped by them, you're willing to do anything to get what you want and anything to keep what you've got. So essentially, it tears down all the boundaries that you never thought you would cross in order to attain or achieve what your heart wants, even if it's a good thing. Listen, some of us in the room are desperate for human companionship. We're desperate for human companionship and intimacy, which are really good and godly things. God created us as relational individuals. He's a relational God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He created us as relational beings to have relationships with each other horizontally, with him vertically. Right? And we're desperate for that relational component in our lives. 
for intimacy with someone, someone who will let us in, someone who will be available and accessible to us. And we desire that so deeply that we'd be willing to do anything to get it and anything to keep it once we find it. For instance, students, some of you students in the room, some of you students are so desperate, right, to fit into a particular social circle or on the other side to have a significant other, right? Someone that you're going to call on the phone and text and Facebook message and Instagram and then you'll break up in two weeks and find somebody else, okay? You're so desperate to have that human companionship, someone that you can, who knows you and knows the deepest parts of your heart and life. You're so desperate for that that you would yoke yourself to an unbeliever just to have that companionship, just to find that relational connectivity. You can say, yes, I'm going to give you my heart. I'm going to give you my life. And so what happens in those contexts is whenever we begin to yoke ourselves to those who don't share similar values, they don't have the values of our true country, but they have the values of this country. What happens is eventually they begin to push for things and beyond boundaries that you never thought that you would break. Why? Because you're so desperate to hang on to that relational companionship that you found, that intimacy that you were longing for, that you're willing to go far above and beyond anything you ever thought you would do so they won't leave. The desire for human companionship and intimacy is not a bad one, but an over-desire for it will lead us to do things that we never thought we would do. And us married couples are not exempt from that either. Right? Some of the married couples in the room, we're in such a desperate place in our relationship. Our relationship might be so cold, and you want companionship and intimacy so desperately. Someone who understands you, someone who lets you in, someone who's accessible and available and actually engaged in your life. And you want it so badly that you're willing to go outside of the covenant relationship in order to find it when you can't find it in there. It's not a bad desire, but an over-desire. Wanting good things too badly leads us to do really bad things. And Peter says, don't be shaped by these excess, overabundant desires. Another way you can see this is in a desire for success. Some of us in our vocations, we have such a desire, or maybe in academics and school students, you have such a desire, such a desire to excel and achieve. Right? So you can graduate in the top of your class. But if that leads you to lie and cut corners and cheat on exams or on papers in order to achieve those grades that you want so badly. Like wanting a good thing too badly leads you to do very bad things. The same is true for us in our vocations, adults. Some of us want that promotion so badly we're willing to kind of manipulate and bend the truth in order to get it. We're willing to stab other people in the back because we want it so desperately. And when we get it, right, or in the process of wanting it, like we steal people's other ideas and we pass them off as our own. Happens all, all across the corporate world and oftentimes in the church world as well. Because we're so desperate. So desperate. Is, is it a bad thing to be successful and to excel in what you do? Absolutely not. But when you want a good thing too badly, it leads you to do very bad things. And Peter says, don't be shaped by your over-desires. These passions, he calls, of your former ignorance. Now, it's found it very interesting that he says they're the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, there was a time in which you didn't know any better, and so that's, all you, that's the only governor that you had to live by. That's the only compass you had to live by is what your heart wanted, so you would do anything to get it. 
before you knew, but say it this way, before you knew any better. That's what Peter says. The passions of your former ignorance. Peter says there are over desires that we chased before that we knew there was something better. You see, here's the secret to getting, getting to resisting these over desires is you gotta, you gotta come to the recognition and realization there is something better than success in this life. There is something better than human companionship in this life. There is something better than getting or keeping a boyfriend. There is something better than having someone understand you and let you in. There is something better than all of these good things even that we long for and desire. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, said it this way. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Listen, Lewis says, If all you know is mud in your backyard, and you've never seen the vast expanse of the ocean, you've never seen the white crystal beaches of the Gulf. Not the part of the Gulf I'm from in South Louisiana, but the other part of the Gulf over there to the east. (laughs) You've never seen those white crystal beaches. If you've never built a sandcastle, then you're content just making mud pies all of your life. But he says, when you come to understand there is something better, there is something more fulfilling. It begins to free you from feeling like you have to have even the good things in this life. When you begin to believe that there is something better coming one day, and you begin to order your life around what is coming as opposed to what is, and you begin to live consistent with the values and practices and customs of your true country and not the values and practices and customs of this country, because you know that what's coming one day is better than what is today. And so you wait, and you wait. You don't compromise, and you don't yield to the over-desires. See, if you're really going to live with this resistance, you've got to begin to replace those desires. You've got to begin to replace them and replace them with a desire for something deeper and more satisfying and more fulfilling than any experience in this life can offer you. So Peter says a part of holiness, of saying, God, I'm all in and I'm all yours, is beginning to resist these desires by saying there is something better coming. But the second thing that Peter tells us if we're going to make progress in holiness of offering ourselves up unto God is this, is that not only do we live with resistance, but we also live in reverence. We live in reverence. In verse 17, Peter says this, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. With fear throughout your time of exile. So while you're on this sojourn, while you're living as a resident alien, a citizen of your true country, while you've got a green card status in this one, he says, during that season, he says, conduct yourselves with fear. Now, what does he mean by fear? Does Peter mean that we should walk around terrified that something terrible is about to happen to us? I'm not sure that's exactly what he is talking about. Does he mean that we are to live in fear as if any moment God will strike us down for one errant thought that passes through our minds. I don't think that's what he's talking about. You see, one of the most often repeated commands in Scripture is fear not. Do not be afraid. And yet here, 
Peter comes to say that a part of a holy life is to conduct yourselves in fear. So what does Peter mean by this? See, one of the ways that word fear is used in the Bible is not to describe the kind of fear that you might experience at a haunted house, okay? When someone jumps out of the, the closet and scares you to the degree that you got to go change your clothes, That's not the kind of fear that he's necessarily talking about. He's talking about a a reverence and a respect for God, an awe of God. There's an awe and a reverence for God that exists in the lives of those who are saying, God, I'm all in and I'm all yours. So Peter says you should have this kind of reverence for God or a respect for authority. And Peter says essentially one of the key components to living a holy life is this, is that while you're living as a, as, as a resident alien in this country, you're bending your knee only and always to the king of your true country. You're bending your knees only and always to the king of your true country, no matter who is in authority in this one. So essentially, Peter says this, and if we're going to pursue holy lives, that you and I have to learn not to fear men, but to fear God. Not to have ultimate respect and reverence for men, but for God. Not to have ultimate reverence and respect for the horizontal relationships that we might be engaged in, but ultimate reverence and respect for this vertical one that exists between the one who has created us and his creation, the one who has redeemed us and those whom he has redeemed. Peter says you've got to live in reverence. How do you know? How do you know if you're living with a greater fear or reverence and respect for the authority of men than for God? A couple of indicators for you, maybe a couple of lights on the dashboard that might go off this week as you kind of think through this issue. How do you know if you're living with a fear of God or with a fear of man? One way is to look at how stable your convictions are. How stable your convictions are. See, if they're always changing based upon the people that you're around, you're kind of living like a chameleon who kind of changes their colors depending upon the setting that they're in and the people that they are with, then there's a great chance that you have a greater respect and reverence horizontally for men than you do vertically for God. Because if you're going to kind of, kind of um, acquiesce in your convictions, if you're going to give them over or, or, or yield on them in particular circumstances or situations, depending upon the convictions of the broader social group that you might be in, there's a good chance that you have more reverence and respect for them and their opinion of you than you do for God and His. In addition... In addition, not only maybe your convictions change, but maybe you just remain silent. So maybe you're in circumstances where people speak out very uh, vehemently against the Bible and very vehemently against Jesus, and as opposed to speaking up, you draw back. You don't say anything in those instances because perhaps you're too afraid of what they're going to think of you. And there's a deeper reverence for their opinion, a deeper respect for their position than there is for God's. Peter says, if you're ever going to begin to make progress in holiness of saying, God, I'm all in and I'm all yours, you've got to come to a position where there is greater reverence and respect for him than there is for them. Where are you at with that? 
Do you yield on your convictions based upon the circumstances that you might find yourself in? Do you remain silent and not speak up in instances where you could? Not to bash people or beat people up, but just to say, this is what Scripture teaches and this is who God is. It's who He's revealed Himself to be. You can do it in a very winsome, in a very loving, in a very gracious, in a very compassionate way, but do you do it? Peter says there's got to be a deep reverence because whoever, whomever you revere most is going to have the greatest shaping influence in your life. Students, if you revere, if you revere and respect right, your peers at school more than you revere and respect the authority of God in your life, then they're going to be the greatest shaping influence in your life. And adults, we're no the same. We're, we're, I mean, we're no different. We're just a little bit older. And the same is true for us. It will have the greatest shaping influence in your life. So how do, you, how do you develop this kind of reverence, or this kind of awe, this kind of respect for God? This is the last thing we need to see this morning out of this text. And we'll come back to it next week. How do we grow in holiness? How do we develop this reverence? We said that in order to live with this kind of resistance, there's got to be an exchange of desires because we know there's something better coming and we're longing for that more than we are for any of the best experiences in this world. But how do you cultivate this reverence for God? How do you develop this awe, this respect for his authority and not their authority? Listen to what Peter says. He says, this kind of reverence is conditioned upon how you see God. In verse 17, he says, If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. He says, If you approach God, if you call on God as a father who judges impartially, then conduct yourselves in fear. So he conditions this reverence that we have for God upon how we see him. Because how we see God determines how we serve him. So you need to see that. How you see God will always determine how you serve him. And listen to what Peter says. He says, God is a father who judges impartially according to each one's work. Now, there's several things we got to untie with that statement here. And the first one is this, is what does it mean that God is father? What does it mean that God is father? That's what Peter calls him here. It means that he loves deeply enough to teach to discipline, draw boundaries, to give graciously to his children. That he's a father in the best and fullest sense of the word. Second, what does it mean that we are judged according to our deeds? Now, some of you go, whoa, whoa. I've read the Bible a little bit, and I've been to some churches before in services, and I've heard them say that, 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 that listen, the only way, the only shot that we have of getting into heaven is through Jesus and Jesus alone, that it's salvation by grace, through faith, in Christ, apart from works. So why does Peter come now to say that we're going to be judged by works? What does it mean that we're going to be judged according to our deeds? It means, listen, it means that where there is a root, there will be fruit. Where there is true faith, there will be evidence of that faith. It will not be an empty, hollow confession. Where there is a root, there will be fruit. Thomas Akempis said it this way many years ago. He said, on the day of judgment, surely we shall not be asked what we have read, but what we have done. Not how well we have spoken, but how well we have lived. 
Because where there is the essence of true faith, of trusting Christ and Christ alone, and we're looking for that which is better that's coming one day, then it begins to shape how we live and the things that we do, our behaviors and our conduct. Where there is a root, there will be fruit. One of the early church fathers, Athenagoras of Athens, that's a great name, right? It's a great, I love their names way back when. But listen to what he says. He says, among us you will find uneducated persons and artisans. In other words, all classes of people. He says, you will find old women as well, who if they are unable in words to prove the benefit of our doctrine, so they can't sit down and articulate very well all the truths that we would espouse from Scripture. He says, yet by their deeds, they exhibit the benefit arising from the persuasion of its truth. In other words, they're so persuaded that Jesus is who he says he is, that he has done what he says he has done, and that he will do what he says he will do one day, that it has this shaping influence in their life. He goes on to say, they do not rehearse speeches, but exhibit good works. When struck, they do not strike again. When robbed, they do not go to the law. They give to those that ask of them and love their neighbors as themselves because there is such, such an understanding of this truth that we are saved by grace, sheer grace alone, and that we don't contribute or merit anything. We don't bring anything up the stairs to God, but he has brought everything down the stairs to us. And because of that, because of that, we want to honor him with our sexuality. Because of that, we want to honor him with our generosity. Because of that, we want to honor him with our gender. Because of that, we want to honor him with our service to others and to this world that is broken and desperate. We want to honor him, not to earn anything from him, but to honor him with everything that he has given to us. Where there is root, there will be fruit. Now, what does it mean that God is impartial? It's what I think Peter means, that he does not differentiate between those who live in Highland Park and South Dallas. That he does not differentiate between those who live in Uptown and Quinlan. That he does not differentiate between those who have uh, one particular type of skin color, ethnicity, economic, age, physical attractiveness, style, eating habits, hygiene. <laughs> He doesn't differentiate between those who are raised on one side of the tracks and those who are raised on the other side of the tracks. He doesn't differentiate between those who are one political party and those who are another political party. He doesn't differentiate between any of those classifications that we would look at and judge people in accordance with. But to say that God is impartial means, it means that he doesn't judge people the way that we do. Because when somebody walks through the doors, unfortunately, in almost every instance in our lives, we tend to size them up based upon how they're dressed, what they look like, what, what, what they did with their hair this week, right? What skin color they have, whether or not they have ink on their arms or legs or neck or chest. We tend to judge people on the basis of those external appearances, but God is able to see through all of that. And he judged people, people impartially, and so there's no favorites based upon zip codes or social standings. He's an impartial father to all of his children. 
But in his impartiality, the scriptures still say, even Peter says here that he judges. He does judge. Now, some of us have a really hard time holding those two concepts together, right? The fatherhood of God and his justice. He's a loving, gracious, generous father, but he's also a just judge. How do we hold those two concepts together? I would say to you this this morning that unless you hold those two concepts together, you will never live with a reverence for him. You will never live with a respect for his authority. Because either you will have a God who is all of law or you will have a God who is all of love. You have a God who is all of law and, and, and you, you never can feel like you can get quite close enough to him. You can never feel like you can quite have a degree of intimacy with him. You will never sense that he is welcoming you and receiving you. You will never see the God that Jesus speaks of in Luke's gospel in chapter 15 with the two sons as he entreats them, rolls out the biggest party in the history of the family when the errant son returns home as he goes out and entreats the the son who had stayed in Luke 15 in the parable of the prodigal son. You'll never see that God who is full of grace, compassion, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. If you have a God all of law, there will never be any intimacy. But if you have a God who is only all of love and there is no accountability, and there is no judgment, and there is no justice, and he has no anger kindled against sin, then his love is nothing but mere sentiment. It's nothing but mere sentiment because it didn't cost him anything to love you. If you only have a God of law, you will never feel close to him. If you only have a God of love, his love becomes cheap because it's mere sentiment and not very costly. But when you see that the God of the Bible is both a God of law and a God of love, so that there are standards by which he measures, there, is, there, there are standards by which he judges. And yet, he went, he, because of his love, he went so far, so far, in order to pour his life out, the life of his son out for you at the cross, so that he might love you and that you might come close to him, even though you don't measure up even though you can't achieve the standard of perfection that he requires, he has loved you and set his affection upon you and poured himself out for you. If you only have a God of law, it will never change you. If you only have a God of love, he will never change you. But if you have a God who of both law and love and you hold those two things together, both a father who judges, you gotta have both. And you set that at the center of your life. It creates this reverence for him. Where you go, no matter what man can do to me. (laughs) No matter what man can do to me. I'll be faithful to him. Because even when I couldn't meet the measured standard, he met it for me. Peter says, if you're going to live in holiness, there's got to be a resistance because you know something better is coming. And there's got to be a reverence in your life that's created because you see the very essence of who God is as a father who judges. And my hope 
My hope is that we would be a church. My desire is that we would be a church, that Redeemer would be a place where people, no matter their history, they could come and they would, stay, they would see, yes, I, I know I don't measure up, but Jesus does. But Jesus does. And that would get set at the center of people's hearts. And there would be a holiness where there is a hundred people, 200 people, 300 people who stand before God and say, God, I'm all in and I'm all yours. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning thanking you for your grace apart from which we could not approach you. That we would be absolutely consumed by your holiness. But because of the finished work of Christ and because of the nature of who you are as a father who judges, that we are able to look to you and not yield and bend to the circumstances, environments, or social settings that we might be in, but we're able to offer up our lives and say, I'm all in and I'm all yours. Everything that I have belongs to you because you've given everything that you are to me. And God, I pray that there would be an absolute resistance that we live with where we resist those over-desires of wanting a good thing so badly that we're willing to do bad things in order to get it. because we know something better is coming. Because we have a hope. And so that we would stand before you and say, here I am. I'm all yours. Use me for your priorities and purposes. For your glory and the good of this world. We pray this in Jesus' name.